Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Many people dream of combining the principles of unschooling or democratic schools or self-directed learning with the public school system. And it's a really hard thing to do. And I personally gave up on that mission a long time ago, back when I was in college, when I decided that I was going to work in the private sector, when I was going to work with small groups of teenagers, when I was not going to strive for large-scale institutional change. But there are some who are not content to give up like I did. (laughs) And my guest today is one of those uh, who has a really cool program that I got to see in person earlier this year in 2018 and who was right in the beginning of his journey to combine the principles of unschooling with the openness and equity of public education. And without further ado, here he is. I'm here with Gabe Cooper, the founder of Unschool, which is not unschooling, that was John Holt, but Unschool, which is an initiative of the San Juan Unified School District in Sacramento, California. This is a public school unschooling program in its first year. How exciting. Welcome, Gabe. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here. We met a few weeks ago when I was doing my Northern California speaking circuit and I gave a talk at Unschool. And the very first thing I noticed after you gave me a brief tour was just how incredibly well-resourced and beautiful and nicely laid out the Unschool is. I just called it the Unschool. I, I said the. I'm so ashamed. <laughs> it's fine. The Unschool sounds sounds good too. The Unschool. But you have some really nice buildings. You've managed to get uh, the resources and trust of some higher-ups in your school district And uh, a lot of people, I think, want to bring the principles of unschooling and self-directed learning to the public school realm. So that's what we're going to talk about today is your journey uh, down this path. And and are you at the end of the first year of of running Unschool? Yeah, we have about two months left, I guess, of the first year. You're in April 2018. Yes. So let's rewind. Where did your journey start in education? And not even like as a teacher, like go back earlier, deep deep into your psyche, Gabe. <laughs> so the, I'll, st- I'll, I'll begin with the first time I realized I was being educated. Ooh. And, and so there, there's, and in my head, I see life as learning. And then the education, I see more as society's way of kind of imprinting what they'd like out of me. Um, and that goes back to my first grade classroom in Eugene, Oregon. And um, that's where I was born. And I was raised for the first eight years of my life. And I remember getting my first uh, workbook assignment when I brought home on paper. So I hadn't had that in kindergarten or preschool. And I remember needing help from my parents. And it was a very, I just really remember like not understanding any of the concepts on the paper because I wasn't paying attention in class. And that was kind of uh, a theme, I guess, in my earlier years. But that was the first time I realized that something, I had a misconnection with what they wanted from me and what I, I had previously enjoyed as, as what I thought school was. So that's probably the first time that I ever um, realized something was different, I guess. Something felt a little off to me. Hmm. What grade was that? That was first grade. First grade. So you, you got that signal pretty early. Yeah. Well, I came kind of from hippie parents, I guess you can say, from Eugene, Oregon. Um, and it was just it was just a strange concept to be given like a bunch of like almost a packet. And then they gave us some basic directions, which honestly I have no reminder of. I know that the teacher talked to my mom about it, but I, I don't remember those, those instructions. 
And were your parents generally behind the, the normal traditional school system? They wanted you to get good grades. They thought it was important work to do. Yeah, um, I think I I don't know if they ever told me that. They just told me I needed to go to college. Mm-hmm. So I, I that was that was the theme. Like, hey, as long as you go to college, you'll be employable. You won't live at home the rest of your life. I think that was okay. Fun. Yeah, take take us through the rest of your journey. So yeah, then I, I moved. I think the next real um, interesting phase of education for me was moving from Eugene, Oregon, and going to Clovis, California, to the Clovis Unified School District, which at the time in the eighties, like in the mid eighties, was um, I, I almost standards based back then. They were one of the first districts to get really into the standards based. So coming from Eugene, Oregon to Clovis, California, I um, was almost retained because they were so far ahead, I guess, in California. So I fought through uh, being behind my entire third grade year, most of fourth grade, fifth grade. Um, so that experience of trying to catch up to, to a very um, linear system was a challenge in my beginning. And uh, ultimately, um, I figured it out, I'd say, in junior high, how to play the game, as I'd say. And by high school, I was a valedictorian at, at Clovis High, my high school. And that's so. in the Central Valley of California, where I also grew up going to high school. So I, I feel like we have uh, a little bit of a bond over Central Valley, California, public high school experience. Yeah, that's right. Bakersfield. <laughs> I remember you Ugh. saying. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, right, we're not going to turn this into a... A bash session on the Central Valley, but you you were the valedictorian, and so you you learned how to play the school game. You you got over these hangups that started in first grade, so you won. What what's the big deal, Gabe? You're you're the winner in the yeah. system. Yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like a winner in the system. I felt like I played the game. I don't, and I, and I worked my way into taking um, some city college classes on the side. I found my way, I argued my way into the IB classes so you could um, do things more your own style. Um, And I found through the IB program there was a lot more freedom. I really enjoyed um, doing things that were more real. So we got to, and to this day I own a business based on principles that I uh, worked on in my international relations course my senior year about how to create um, a business model that would work into the... um, we were thought the 2000 was a long way off in 95 when I graduated. So we we're trying to come up with some business model. The internet was just starting. How could we use the internet was kind of like my thinking. And um, about 10 years later, I actually started the business and it exists today. So th- that thinking that I was able to participate in it through like an IB course was really powerful and motivational because it was something that I felt like I could use. So I decided to go into education because I thought I could change it and fix it a little bit maybe. Maybe make it more like the IB experience that you had. Yeah, make it, I didn't even think about that because that already existed, but I, I mean, my dream was to create like my own school um, at some point in college. I, I, I just thought, wow, if I could just make a school <laughs> and then you could just kind of own the reins and, and go where you needed to go. I just thought that would be one of the coolest things that I could ever do in my lifetime. But I, I honestly didn't think that would ever happen. I mean, the opportunity would that, that opportunity just seems so foreign to get that opportunity, that, especially to get funding for it. Like after coming out of, with my credential and jumping into a public school system, um, it, you'd, you'd have to be able to finance that yourself. And that 
my business partner, I, who's also was an educator at the time, we were always thought if we could just make enough money, we could open our own school. And it's just it's a lot more daunting than one might think to start your own private school. Yeah, and there are some people who start very small nonprofits or even you know based out of their living rooms. But I imagine that's not the kind of school that you're thinking of. You wanted something uh, bigger with more like hundreds of kids instead of just a few dozen. Yeah, I wanted something. And, and to be honest with you, most of my career, I've been in um, title schools with low socioeconomic minority students. And I feel like uh, most of our systems um, don't allow access or um, I don't know if it's allow access, but they, it just seems like it's a lot harder for students that um, come from low socioeconomic or minority backgrounds to find ways to access different programs and the public system is where a lot of the students that I've grown up educating were that fall into that category. And I wanted to make a school um, where they would have access to. So A public school, not charging fees. No fees. Right. And be able to welcome students with, with you know, maybe less fortunate backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, what did you study in college, Gabe? I was um, psychology and English major with a, a mini minor in art. A mini minor, okay. Yeah, they invent those. Those are fun. <laughs> and when did you realize that you wanted to be a teacher? What what led you in the direction of getting a teaching credential? Um, well, when I was uh, studying psychology, um, I was actually counseling up in I don't know if anyone knows the name a uh, little town um, east of Sacramento called Auburn, and I was working at a, a clinic there with. Um, um, a, some psychologist team and a psychiatrist and I was helping out and I think after a couple months there I was just dealing with so the kids issues were so broad and huge and I would come home and just be living that day and day uh, of not being able to help them in their lives so I, I had to find a different way to be able to have a positive impact both on my life and their lives so I um, got an internship um, I switched internships to work at a public school where I was working with kids, uh, ADHD. Um, so that's that's kind of how that started. And then I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And you thought you were going to become, what, an English teacher? You know, I didn't. At that time, I wanted to be in elementary school. I didn't want to like, okay. uh, I didn't really want to go into the middle or high school at that range. So my first entry was I wanted to kind of teach it all. So I actually went in and got a, any new teacher knows in the public school, I ended up with a, a four or five combo <laughs> in um, 100% title school. Um, I had uh, about 16 languages, if I remember correctly, in the room. Oh, wow. Um, and mostly boys, because I was the only male teacher at the school. So they gave me uh, this, you know, everyone needed a father figure. So I ended up with most boys in the class that had uh, some kind of troubled background. And so it was a... It was a way to get used to the public education system, but opened my eyes to like a reality that, you know, there was definitely a need there. And what did you see as a teacher? What what was the reality? How did it match up to the ideals that you brought in? Uh, just so many struggles to be able to um, personalize education for students. Um, when you're given a set of standards that um, don't relate to a student or family's life, and I'm, I'm focused so much on on learning a certain math concept or being somewhere in English, and there's so many social-emotional things that I'm not getting to or just how to process through a day or self-care, um, I was missing 
a lot of students because I would just, you know, if, if you're not ready to receive that information of, you know, how to do a polynomial or how to balance an equation or how to just work with, you know, integers, it, it just, I was missing like so many students daily because I didn't have the time to, to know their needs well enough so they could be in a place to begin learning the things that the standards told me that they should know how to do. And how do other teachers, maybe the other teachers you were working with at the school, how do they cope with that struggle? What, what's the typical response when you realize, my gosh, there's all this content I'm trying to teach, but these kids aren't even ready to, to hear this content because there's so many other things that need to come first? Yeah, that's a range of things. Some go to blame. I mean, the easiest thing for most probably educators to do is say, hey, they, you know, I could either blame the grade level before me. Hey, the third grade teachers didn't do what they were supposed to do, you know, so on and so forth. A lot of people go to the parents. Um, other people blame systems. And they're, a group of us were really into just trying to, like, give the kids the most that we could do. I mean, we'd take them to uh, – every year I'd write a grant with the um, Sierra Club back then and – I take the kids camping and we go to um, Sly Park and spend a week there. And that honestly was the where I saw them learn the most. They'd never seen snow. They'd never mm-hmm. had to stand. I mean, it was just the first time where I got to see and meet the kids on their own level. And you could almost see it through their eyes, This the world of wonder, where they had never been outside of Sacramento, sometimes probably not outside a few blocks, um, and taking them up there and just seeing them in bewilderment and when they walk out the first time with like flip flops and shorts and snow and they think it's great. And 10 minutes later, they're looking at you go, I'm cold. That's right. (laughs) And you're, you know, yeah, this is, this is a real thing. Um, during your talk, you talked about these natural boundaries, uh, the ones that the environment kind of bestows on you with wonderful gifts. Um, that was, I mean, that was a great terminology. Uh, that's what I was seeing there was those natural boundaries of a student walking into snow or, you know, how to make a shelter and they get a splinter and it, you know, it's just, yeah, it's the first time where like the, the learning makes sense. It's like, I need to do this to survive in this new environment. Yeah, uh, to- totally. So you saw that they had these great experiences when they're doing experiential education. Right. Um, I mean, when did this start turning into the idea that I should stop being a public school teacher and start my own program? Um. That I never, I never wanted to leave public. I just kept trying to change it. So like I decided we had these reading lessons. So instead I went out and started buying all these Lego kits because they said the kids couldn't read. And I would uh, grab these, you know, complicated label, Lego kits and get rid of all the pictures. And I would just type up directions for the kids and do my own vocabulary for what the pieces were called. And, and they could put everything together. And um, people would say, well, how do you know they can read? And I'm like, they built something. Like they have it. I don't even have to test it. That's the test. I mean, the, it just happened. They, <laughs> you know, they, they'd show me like the, I think back then there was some like Star Wars doing new parts coming out. And so they'd build them and the kids would say, well, how do you know I can read? I go, I know you can read because you accomplished it. And even for them, they were so used to being tested that even that was so foreign. It was like, it was just complicated. So as I just kept going through our system after about, I don't know how many years, uh, let's see, I came in in 2000 and then about two years ago, I was at a meeting where the superintendent, I'd been talking for years about how kids weren't, you know, understanding things. I was a middle school principal at that time. And he looked at me like, let's do something different. And he trusted me to do that. So that's when, the, that's when that conception of like, wait a minute, can I have the true autonomy to try to do something really different? 
So you spent more than 15 years in the system as a teacher and then as a principal, you said? Yeah. And then finally, it sounds like you got one friendly superintendent who said, let's try to do something different and I'm going to help you make it happen. Yeah, that's that's what happened. Just based on your reputation and and the relationship you had with this administrator? That's, um, yeah, that would be my interpretation. Um, he, <laughs> he, he knew I was a little, I'm known to be maybe a little um, out of the box. I mean, he might say way out of the box, um, but I, I I never feel like I'm as far out as people think. That's that's one of, that's one of those strange perception things. I, I think I'm very normal. <laughs> I mean, I that's all I know. So I always think, yeah, this feels normal to me. But other people are saying this is really weird. But so, what so. was the idea that you had that felt normal to you that I'm sure other people immediately labeled as weird? So I, you know, I was really careful with what I thought education was. So, um, so. 18 months I spent pretty much interviewing kids, checking out schools, and just asking kids, what do they like about school? What do they, you know, what is it about school? And then I quickly ask them, what do you like about learning? And kind of debrief with them about, okay, school's this organized system of telling you how to like behave and operate and learn in some linear fashion. Now talk to me about like your learning. Like you have a free Saturday, what do you want to do with that time? Like what's your learning then? So kids would tell me how they learn and what that looked like. And I just kept thinking, like, why can't I create that environment at, you know, quote unquote school? Why can't that be school? So I quickly, you know, started, you know, I was reading a lot more books at the time. Um, checked Gatto out, checked um, uh, Grace from Eugene out with a Teenage Liberation Handbook. Just started reading a lot of text and um, found your text um, through a friend and uh, just started really reading and trying to get that side of things uh listening to podcasts um uh, ted talks you know ken danford i listened to his i just listened to a ton ton of people and then just kept interviewing kids and they they all told me they really didn't like classes they really liked what i came to define as chill time with um, like an adult that can mentor um huh. so we that, that we was the theme like uh, like teen chill time with adults who can potentially help you with stuff. That, yeah, you got it. It's nothing profound really to me. It's just like, hey, can I have an adult <laughs> know something or willing to try something with me even? I mean, I have kids okay. like trying to weld or just listen to me and let's try it. Let's make a movie. Let's do this. Let's, whatever it is, let's try and educate ourselves about it. So break down uh, the principles of unschool uh, for us. Uh, oh, what we're trying to create. Now, this is an ever-changing, so in this year, just the start of it, um, it's greatly evolved. It began with a statement after talking to the kids where I said, um, I wanted to create an unschool where you would just hack an education. Um, and from there, we tried, you know, we have about 80 students. They've come in, and our principle was they're going to help design the entire program, the whole school, what they wanted. Um, we met with them. Um, uh, it's tough. I will start with saying, like, caveat, like meeting with 14 and 15-year-olds, super difficult to have um, sometimes a big picture versus a short-term picture. So that was one of the things that was a challenge for us. Um, but a lot of talking about, like, what would an advisory look like? So you're going to have this mentor. What's it look like? Um, Internship-wise, who would be ready for internships? What would that look like? Um, and I think we better pause here for a second, Gabe, because you are still uh, talking about a public school. And so yep. I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking, you know, how much latitude can this guy really have 
because you still need to check off all these boxes. We assume that there are standardized tests that still need to be completed and scored at a, a certain level. And so I mean, what's the premise here? Like, what do you have to make them do in order to still receive public funding? Uh, and, and then we'll talk about what you're able to add on on top of that to, you know, to grab their interest okay. to inspire them. So yeah, one of the things when, when trying to create the school, we needed to find a way to take attendance, so to speak. Uh, one of the, and we opted with the, um, it's, we didn't want the seat-based attendance. We wanted the flexibility for kids to work at home or internships and things like that. So we went with the independent study um, model for attendance, which is a production-based. So that helped us through that hoop, which is a major hoop in this type of education. Because we do have, for instance, we have one student that goes to um, um, San Francisco where she's part of a photographer. She works with a photographer there. So this type of model allows her, whenever those shoots are going on, she can take that day, jump on the megabus, and head there. Um, so that was a really important choice for us, and it allows us to cancel school, move school around, and be a lot more flexible. So um, that was one model. Um, we don't with uh, both uh, ninth and tenth graders. We don't have a, a standardized test that they'd have to take. Uh, California asked juniors to take a test, so next year um, I have no problem with a student taking a test because I think that's part of, you know what students might have to do. And I think that, I mean, I'm all for students if they know they're going to go to college, if they want to take the PSAT, that that's a, something you should be practicing, that there are some skills that you want to yeah, know. Going agreed. Into um, so that, that I don't, I don't have any issues with the, the one that we're going to have probably go very deep into, uh, probably sink our teeth into next year is credits. So right now our district does have the model we've kind of had is uh, 220 credits to graduate the next thing, so our kids are starting that journey, um, and we might always have to have like some way to convert. So you start out at an unschool, you, you might want to go to a different school, which we've had students, students opt for that. We need a way to kind of convert so they, they can re-enter a more traditional school. Um, so next year, I do plan to go to the, the school board and present a competency-based, we kind of call it leveling, um, based on your skills and your knowledges that, that you've earned. Um, so that's our next hoop is actually to crumble that system. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of hope that we can do that with um, some sound um, student interviews and having them go with us to the board and say what really matters because we've mm -hmm. come a long, long way already. So that that's probably the biggest one that really feels um, like a huge weight on us because, um, and I've met kids that come from homeschool and other things like that, that. I interviewed that felt kind of that same presence of saying, I need to have these check boxes still. And these are still the check boxes that we haven't overcome yet, but okay. so we're thinking about it. You want to be able to give them high school credits for the experiences and the projects that they've been working on at unschool. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, we, and we're doing that already. It's just, it'd be okay. nice not to have to call them credits. Yes. Well, we can all, <laughs> we can all dream and hope. Um, so are there any classes at unschool that, students need to take or um, that are regularly to, offered we have well the only one that they're really a part of is their advisory that's like their family um so they meet uh daily with their advisory um, and that's about 20 students that meet together like check in um uh, right now we have them following kind of a curriculum we uh got through uh stanford d school uh, project wayfinder and it was a startup in their d school i think think tank through k-12 lab so we went this past summer and we wanted something so the students could uh, think about 
who they are and who they're becoming. So it's kind of a wayfinding. How do you weigh your wayfind yourself through life through your experiences and what skills you have? And um, what, what a big one um, is how you want to change the world and how you're going to use your skills and your knowledge to impact the world in some way. So we are we kind of run them through that um, curriculum that we have to help just help them dig a little deeper into what they'd like to create. And for the kids that don't have. I mean, we have some kids that showed up the first day and they knew they were going to build a plane. And I have a kid that he's on the second build of a plane. I mean, that's what he, he knows his passion. But a lot of students don't. So we hope that, you know, that helps them try to find their strengths and, and help locate passions or things to, to learn a little bit more about and figure out if they do, don't or do like something. So, so beyond the morning advisory meetups with 20 of your peers and, and a staff member, mm-hmm. and then it sounds like this pretty light fairly self-reflective uh, curriculum that's designed by Stanford D school. There's nothing else that's formally required for these kids to do. No. Yeah. They, the rest of their day, the rest of the four hours is pretty much uh, there. They organize. We offer seminars based on what they want. So right now I have a book club. We're reading chromosome six for biology and English. We've you know, and so we have kids. It's all optional. We have kids that wanted to do a physics rocketry seminar. Seminar. We have that going on. We have a biology seminar, but they're all optional. Um, we had one in robotics earlier. Coding. This is incredible, Gabe. Like I, I am not aware of any other public school, any public funded program that offers this level of autonomy in high school. Are, are you? Uh, no. It's that's and that's amazing and super scary at the same time. Yeah, right. Because you're thinking that when is the guillotine going to drop? You know, how long can the good times last? Yeah, and how much like like um, just knowing fourteen fifteen this year and seeing the kids and we show them like you have these you have the, all these hours at school you know twenty hours basically to have access to our great maker space. Uh, we have a huge space for just different things. We can have, you can run your own seminars. We've got some great lounge space. Um, but to how are you going to make the most of that? You know, knowing your passion, what are you going to do with your time? And you know, sometimes you see students opting to do something that I, I I have to coach myself and say, are they is that the most valuable thing they could be doing? If they're, for instance, on their phone on Instagram or whatever it is they're doing, Snapchats and all those things. Sometimes I I have this uh, preconceived notion that I'm not sure it's the best use of their time. Um, but I, you know, that's my opinion and that's not necessarily truth. Uh, they could be learning. Uh, I mean, it's your opinion and you're also the director of this, this school. So (laughs) yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's something that homeschooling families and unschooling families or uh, families who send their kids to highly alternative schools like democratic free schools or self-directed learning support centers deal with all the time. And uh, I mean, how do your, how do the parents of the teens who go to unschool feel? Uh, I mean, have you gotten any pushback when a kid goes home and their parent says, what did you do today at school? It's like, well, I went to my advisory and then we did a little bit of like, you know, what's your passion type of stuff. And then I hung out and scrolled through Instagram all day. Do you ever get parents calling you up and being like, what is this BS unschool thing you're doing and why are you ruining my child's future? You know, um, here's the great part of, of this conversation for me being in the system where I was in the traditional, um, I get that a lot. Like parents mad because something wasn't happening. Uh The nice part about unschool, as I tell kids, you own your learning. So those conversations are pointed toward back at the kid. So they don't, I mean, we already said what we offer. We offer great advisors, time, 
and access to some great things. So if you don't take advantage of it, we're not making you. So those conversations usually just turn right to the kid going, so you have access to all this stuff and this is what you're doing. So that's a really nice piece. I don't have those tough conversations because we just look at the students saying, okay, you have these hours, you're opting to do that. So but please. A, a, a lot of parents still feel that that's the job of a teacher or a school is to, to shape and motivate kids to work on stuff that they don't want to work on, to, to write the hard essay, to do math that the kid sees no relevancy to today, but will somehow benefit them in the future. So the story goes. And uh, so do you have any parents pushing back from that angle? Like, why aren't you, why are you, are you letting my kid do this or not do anything apparently with their time when so, you should be, that's your job. So yeah, th- no, I haven't had a lot of that. I haven't had that because I think opting for this is parents have opted not to be in that environment. Um, and okay. a lot of, and there have been parents that have put their kids back in traditional cause, but usually the conversation is, you know, if, if unschool would have been here, been there when I went to school, I would have loved this. I sure, I wish this would have worked for my kid. That's usually what I get when they leave. Um, because I think in your head, this freedom to learn is just so, I mean, it's like the secret sauce. It's just you, <laughs> you think someone's just going to just dive on it and love it. Um, but not everyone does. I mean, I still get students that they will come to me. They'll say, with all this time, they'll like ask me for a textbook. And it is like painful for me. And I'll get one. I'll tell them I can get anything. We can order it. Let's jump. Which one do you want? What do you want? And they just want something super like scripted. So, I mean, I find it incredibly painful sometimes, but they, I mean, that's just... Well, do you feel like they're not being genuine when they ask for that textbook? Do you feel like someone's putting them up to it or they just feel guilty that they're not doing the same stuff that other teenagers are doing? Um, I think, um, to be honest, I think it's more of they have hit a point where, I don't know if it's boredom. I don't know if it's they feel like they could do more. Uh, and, and they know that by, to them answering endless amounts of questions because of how they've been trained that feels that feels good like do that feels like they're doing something and that that's an interesting i think that's a really interesting thing to have to deal with is that process of feeling like i'm busy to be doing something and the kids if they're just pounding away on a a textbook answering questions that feels super productive to them whether or not they're really learning is the part that you know I question. Like, if you're just answering questions to do it to impress somebody, um, it's impressing yourself. Please, please stop. Yes. Yeah, please stop. So, I mean, that's where I think that comes from is just years of being in the public system where you hand someone a packet again. Like, it's my back to my first grade. And here, if you do this, I have some evidence of learning. Um, and it's, I don't think it's a real indicator. It, I mean, I know it's not cause I've thrown away, ton- I've done those packets and it didn't change my life. So you've mentioned that there are a handful of students who seem to really be taking advantage of what unschool has to offer the resources that you have available. They're, they're traveling and doing things outside of the school environment, but it also sounds like there are many more students who are not kind of stepping up to the challenge, not taking advantage of all this, and maybe, in your opinion, squandering their their freedom that they've been given. And so, after you know completing almost your first year of unschool, I just want to take the temperature. Like, are you feeling hot or are you feeling cool on this whole idea of giving kids a large amount, uh, giving high schoolers a large amount of freedom and responsibility? 
So you, you've hit a good one. I'm really careful on this one because I, I tend to be really hard on myself and my advisors too. But I would say it's, a, it's an absolute roller coaster um, by the second. Like I can walk with one student. Like today, he's building a Bluetooth radio. He's, he actually started the box and he's made a whole wood box out of oak. And he made a mistake and I thought, oh, he'll quit. And he rebuilt the whole thing, stained it. And we um, jumped through a hoop when his switch wasn't working. And we jumped online today. And he's like, I really... You know, this one's $2, but I really like the $8 one. And I said, well, what's your argument for the $8 one? And he, he just formalized all his ideas and why we – so, I, you know, we went to Amazon. We bought the, the missing switch. So in two days, he'll be able to finalize this Bluetooth radio. So then I'm on a high. So I can walk out of that experience and walk up to another student um, and have a totally different conversation. It was like, I'm not going to have a project for exhibition. And you're kind of like, well, what happened? And they'll, they'll tell you, honestly, I didn't manage my time right. I switched my project six times. I really didn't know what to, you know, I, here's my passion, but I, I guess I started. And, and so then I'm on a low. And so I go through this daily <laughs> experience of um, ups and downs, but I call it real life. I mean, so I have to always be like cognizant that that is life. I mean, as fast as something feels good, the next moment it cannot feel good. So that's a really tough question to answer, like to get an actual temperature, because that temperature that you're asking for is something so finite um, it's like taking my blood sugar level right now after I ate a chocolate bar and then waiting <laughs> till I woke up in the morning. So that's how quickly for me it is. It's almost like over the span of time, I think at the end of the year, I'll have to look at like each individual case of a student and say like, what was that experience for them? And then let them actually tell me that experience because once again, if I see what I, like, there's a kid the other day who's on his phone. I thought, oh, you're just watching videos. And I like walk up behind him. I'm like, oh, you're learning how to TIG weld. He's like, yeah, this is this is a, this guy's the best learning how to TIG weld. So he's actually studying TIG welding. So I mean, you got to be so careful with your judgments. Like I have to suspend judgments sometimes because I'm like, oh, they're not. That doesn't look proactive. Or if I'm just sitting under a tree relaxing, that can be a huge motivating uh, learning experience for people. Um, so it's just having to rewire myself and my own thinking. So in terms of a uh, temperature, there's, I mean, if I had to go back, it's, it's sometimes it's 115 degrees and other times I feel like we're in, we're in Antarctica <laughs> within <laughs> you, moments. You dropped a, a phrase in there, which was presentation. What is that? Oh, for uh, our, the, one of the things when I interviewed kids, they wanted uh, the idea of learning to be more authentic so we have the students do their, they have to present their learning to um, their parents and community members. So we invite, this will be our second presentation of learning. It's like we call them exhibitions. So they're able to show off and describe what, what they've learned and why they chose that at uh, an evening event where we host um, the parents and community members to come in and like ask some tough questions to the students about like what they did, why they did it. We, we kind of script some questions for the adults so they know kind of how to ask. Um, one of the things I've learned is you try to be, um, soft on the human and then hard on the content. Um, okay. So, yeah. So what's the future of unschool? Is it going to be able to continue in its current form next year? Uh, are you relying upon the goodwill of a, a single administrator? You know, if you had to bet money on, on how long your baby is going to last, what would you bet? Ooh, I'm not a better. I'm, I'm not a better. So, uh, <laughs> I, I just live. So I, I mean, my attitude is as long as I'm involved, I think we can sustain. We have an incoming uh -huh. class for next year. So next uh -huh. year's good. I'm going to, um, I renewed, we had to make a pretty, um, 
unique MOU, a memorandum of understanding with our uh, teachers union. We have a powerful teachers union in San Juan. And they uh, signed off on a three-year um, allowance for us to continue for three more years under the... So, I mean, I mean, I think as long as there's um, community support, which we have, and uh, great teacher advisors. I, uh, when I first started, I called them the deviants because I hired people that, were, that wanted to deviate from the norm. Um, I think, I, I don't think there is an end that way. And I actually, my true feeling inside is that we're going to pull people and, and other schools over more to what we're doing. So I really think, I, that's just my, I don't know if I'm right, um, <laughs> but I, I really, I mean, I get so many questions and people, I mean, I get everything from people like rolling their eyes saying good luck with that to, I, I, most people are just like, wow, that's, I wish I could make my classroom more like that. And my answer is you can. Um, it's, it's. It's not like it's, I, I think there is some major hoops that we're having, but I think, I think we're on the right track. I think. So if other people come to you, maybe other teachers and say, I want to do something like you're doing, what direction do you point them in? Um, in the past, I've had them read um, some texts, um, whether it's Gatto or um, Grace's book, or I think I've given your text to people, um, self, the art of self-directed learning. I think it's, um, and just talking to kids. I always tell people, just talk to the student. No, I mean, there's no better person to understand their own learning than the person. And especially as they get older, they really understand. But I even think kids will show you in actions of what, how they like to learn, whether it's through kinesthetic or um, auditorily. They'll, they'll gravitate to those things. And it's just being like open to how other people learn and just listening. And I, I don't think it's as hard as we've made it. Well, I'm, I'm imagining a teacher who maybe has done the reading already, who has listened to kids for a number of years and feels like, okay, I am ready to start a program that's like unschool and I need to convince my school district that they should let me do this. They should give me money. And I, I know there's a lot of people out there who are like this and who want to start publicly funded unschooling type programs and it's it's hard it's i think a lot of people just run into straight up no answers and so um yeah for somebody who's already done their background research what what kind of advice would you have for that person in terms of actually making it happen so i went to my school board and i told stories so my powerpoints i i i uh i crafted around three stories and they, they were different types of students in our district. And I just told their story of their experience of what's going on right now for them. And one was a graduate who I'd known um, that did everything right and felt like in college she'd changed her major like five or six times in her first year. And she felt like it was because of our, you know, our high school education system. Uh, I had a, um, a, a newer student. I was a sophomore. I interviewed. I went with that person's story. And I went with uh, one other story of someone that um, actually left our system because they didn't feel like they could stay connected. And people listen to those stories. Um, I think in today's world, um, districts, there's so many options with all the charters and things like that, that it would be, you know, really not wise or unwise to, to just say, we're doing it one way and that's how we're going to do it. So if you want to hold on to your students in your districts and, and, and if you truly believe that public education um, should have more offerings, 
And I, I really believe a lot of people think that they just don't know how to get there. Um, I think, I think these programs will actually be growing and growing just like the charter movement. And I, and public school just has to realize, and the first thing I wrote in a journal, like when I started my journey was why aren't public schools doing more with alternative learning and, and just education. And I could not find any reason. I, I was calling CDE. I was calling experts. They're like, no, any public schools can do this. And I was just like this belief. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's the same. I always use the joke in like the IT program um, uh, based on um, – so there was a study I read about these monkeys that were in um, you know, they're in a, a, a science lab, and they, they put out bananas. And if they walked up to like the red banana, they'd squirt them with water. So over time, these, the, the, the chimps wouldn't go get the red banana. And so they kept reintroducing a new monkey, a new chimp. And by the time they got to a point where the entire um, exam, uh, the sample was new monkeys, and guess what? They never went to the red banana. It had been, <laughs> they, they'd never been squirted. Yeah, that's but right. I, they, I, they passed it down through, through culture. Yeah. Through cult, and I think that's where we're at. That it's, it exists, but because no one's gone for the red banana, no one's gone for something alternative. That it's just become like, no, we don't do that. Huh. So I, I think that's the iron. I think it's just the silly thing where, you know, you look around you and you go, why, why, why is everyone doing standardized testing? It's because that's what we do. Versus, hey, what happens if we don't? Or what happens if we don't follow the curriculum perfectly? Or what happens if we don't? I think that it just. You know, we became the chimp. We became the study. So I, I really think it's a matter of stepping out of yourself for just a little bit and saying, like, wait a minute, why are we really doing something? And is this best for kids or yourself? It's a super inspirational message. And I think that one other big part of it is having programs like yours that exist right now that other teachers or people who are part of the education system can point to and say, look, they're doing this over in Sacramento. Uh, or you can point to, you know, little experiments in San Diego or outside of Denver or Philadelphia. There's there are cool, very alternative public school experiments going on. They're just very few and far between. And I think that those, in addition to stories and in addition to data, um, is what can lead to the growth of more of these programs. And so, so please keep doing this, Gabe, because I, I think the snowball will only happen if you and a handful of others like you stick around and keep making it happen. That's the dream. The dream. Gabe That's Cooper, the dream. thanks for being on my podcast. Oh, pleasure. <laughs>